<laughs> well, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, man, this is a great, great, great Sunday. The topic is great, and yet, if you're visiting with us today, I feel like I should apologize. You know, there's like two times that you've said, like, I, I'm not going to church if they're talking about giving or hell. Welcome to one of the two. And today we're in the book of Revelation. We've been moving through it in this series, The Walking Dead. And the whole idea is we're following the book of Revelation and we're at the end. We're almost done. And so if this is um, discouraging to you today, I pray it's convicting. But, but you want to come back next week because next week we're talking about heaven. And so come on, you got to get at least both. At least, if you're here today, it's your first time. You got to come back next week. Give me, give me a chance to do both sides. I'm not a hellfire brimstone preacher. I'm not. We don't talk about it every Sunday, but I'm, I will go there when the text leads us there because it's, a, it's a, a hard reality we all have to face. This week for us here in town um, was a hard week as we watched a beloved local, I don't know, hero, so to speak, pass away. When Andrew passed away this past week, I know various people of you who served him and knew him or are friends with him or his family, and uh, you've grieved. But the one thing that I love about his story is his passing was the beginning, not the ending. He's a young man, and if you're close to him, just like my family for my wife could tell you she's not perfect, um, I'm sure Andrew wasn't perfect either, but I know he loved Jesus. And, and now he gets to be with Jesus. And while we grieve and we look at him and go, oh, man, it's so sad, it's tragic. It is sad, and it's tragic, and it's hard for his family. However, for him, he's on the other side going, sweet home, Alabama, I don't know, anyway, I'm free. I mean, this is a great thing for him. But in addition to Andrew, there were also some other national personalities who passed away. Alan Rickman, David Bowie. And if you appreciate the arts and movies or whatever, then both these men played a significant role. And depending on how you feel about their specific talents, they, they were great. They were a blessing. But there's a huge difference between those men. When you go look up Andrew's life, you find out that he loved Jesus. It's all over the place. He loved God. But I did, I did almost, almost an hour's research on David Bowie and Alan Rickman, both, each. And um, let me just say, it's wildly inconclusive where they stood with God. David Bowie, in fact, in one interview, I believe it was in 2009, I didn't write down the year, he talked about being one step away from being an atheist and thought he would probably get there. Alan Rickman, he grew up in a Methodist and Catholic home, mom was Methodist, dad was Catholic. And his life was wildly inconclusive as to whether or not he loved God. And here's the thing. See, some of you who are maybe visiting, you think I'm being judgmental. I'm not because I don't know where anybody is. I'm not responsible for anybody. But I know this. There's only one person that I can make sure gets to heaven. And it's not my wife and it's not my kids. It's me. I'm the only one. And so what I want to do in this message is I want to ask you some hard questions. I want to teach on what is hell. Next week we'll get to heaven. What does it look like? What does the Bible say about it? What can we know with absolute certainty? What can't we know with absolute certainty? And by the end of it, I want you to be able to answer yes to this question. Yes to this question. Here's the question. If you were to die today, are you at peace with what would happen next? If you want to test this theory, I lived in Colorado before I moved here, and every time you're headed west, so you're in an airplane, you're headed west, and the plane would land down at DIA, Denver International Airport, 
there's always a drop because there's an altitude and a pressure drop. So there's always a spot where the plane drops. And the first few times, you don't know that. By the you know, fourth, fifth time you fly, you just go, hey, here it comes. We don't know when it's going to come. It's going to come. But the first few times it comes, um, let me just say it, is, it can be a mess. Um, it is a terrifying experience. That plane drops 20 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet, whatever it is, and you are convinced it's the end. And let me just tell you, what runs through your mind are all the things that you've left undone in this life. You realize, I don't know the actual amount of time that it takes. I'm sure somebody in here who knows 9.8 meters per second squared, how much weight is on the plane and everything else, how long it takes. It takes seconds. That's all I know. From the moment the plane starts dropping to the moment it actually crashes. And I watched Lost, which was really popular at this time, which is miserable. But what goes through your mind is all those things that I haven't dealt with. So you really want to know this peace question. Go hop on a plane. And then the moment that it happens, ask yourself, am I ready? And the thing is, I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. You can be. You don't have to get to the end and wonder, am I ready? I want you to be totally, completely ready. And my hope in this message is to tell you what it means to be ready. Because Jesus says this, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You won't walk up to an apple tree and find peaches. That doesn't happen. You won't walk up to an apple tree and find rotten apples. You may, but not in Jesus' analogy. His analogy is when you walk up to an apple tree, you're going to find healthy, ripe apples because that's what apple trees produce. And his point is you can, not judgmentally, but you can look at a person's life and see the fruit of their life. Does their actions match their words? Somebody could say, I love God, but does their life follow what their words say? And we have to balance these things as believers because Jesus also tells us not to judge others. By the standard we use, we judge others. We also will be judged. So we must be very careful not to be responsible for anybody else's life and determine where anybody else is, but to not leave any questions in anybody's mind when our last breath comes. I can't wait for that day when, when I go. I told Rachel, I said, I don't want people weeping and crying. I want there to be a big old party in my name and somebody better preach the gospel. That's all I know. Like, I want a party. Y'all can cry later at my funeral, my celebration. It's a celebration of my life. I want people to tell you stories of the fruit of the life that I did the best that I knew to do to glorify God here, and I want that for you. I want that for you. But today, we're going to take a look at one half of this coin, and that is... Um, an eternal battle we call hell. And this is a hard thing. This week I read two books. I've, I've done a lot of study research, sermons, content over the last few months. But just this week I read a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. Highly recommend it. Go get it. If you just want an overview of hell, it goes deeper than I can go. There's deeper books than that one, but it's a good start. And uh, he's responding to a book by a guy named Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. And Rob Bell's theory, though Rob never says it because he's great at asking a lot of questions and never landing any planes, but what Rob is building out the entire book, if you read it, is Rob is trying to say that in the end, love will win. Nobody will technically end up in hell because somehow after death, God's love will just triumph in everybody. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as if that verse were meant to mean everyone will be saved. And so Francis wrote his book in response to that to say, is that really what the Bible says? That's what I want to take a look at. The other book I read, I don't recommend you read, was Dante's Inferno. <laughs> if you want to not sleep for a few days, give it, a, give it a try. But here's what Francis said, and I agree with him in Erasing Hill. He says in the opening, I'm scared because so much is at stake. Think about it. And if I say there is no hell and it turns out that there is a hell, I may lead people to the very place I convinced them did not exist. If I say there is a hell and I'm wrong, I may persuade people to spend their lives frantically warning loved ones about a terrifying place that isn't real. When it comes to hell, we can't afford to be wrong. 
This is not one of those doctrines where you could toss in your two cents, shrug your shoulders, and move on. Too much is at stake. Too many people are at stake. And the Bible has too much to say. So with that, let's take a look at what the Bible actually says. We're going to start our journey by, I'm going to bring up the speed real quick, where we've been in Revelation. We've been in Revelation. We're closing it out. We're almost done. And we're going to start the book of Acts next. However, the Revelation, chapter 19, I'm going to bring you up to speed on where we were. Look at verses 19, 7 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride <coughs> has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Leave this up on here, if you will. So I told you last week, you go online, listen, I don't have time to teach the whole message again, that there's this thing called a, a, a triumphal procession, and there's over 350 documented triumphal processions in ancient Rome. And what would happen is when the governor, that's a governor and a Roman ruler, a governor, oh, raggy, when a Roman governor would conquer an evil king, what he would do is he would take whatever army was left to surrender, he would take the king and his family and his kids, and he would put them in this triumphal procession. And then he would take his own army, and they'd all be wearing certain clothes, and he'd come riding in on a white horse into the city, and all the people would gather in white, and they'd be wearing their white clothes, and they'd be singing out praises to their king who had conquered the other king, and he would bind the other soldiers and the king and his family, and they would make him go into the temple, usually to Jupiter, and they'd bring them all up there. They'd reenact the battle and he would humiliate that king publicly and I told you this is what John is doing in the book of Revelation 19 to 20 he's telling us how God has done this to his enemy Satan and on the last day he's going to embarrass him he's already embarrassed him on the cross he's going to finally do this then we get to Revelation 20 we see that this king is bound in chains and then what happens in Rome is one of two things and that's why both of these are probably possible even eternally is that king would then throw the, ki the other king, the foe, into jail along with his family forever, or he would just go ahead and kill him and destroy him. And this is why we see in Revelation 20, verse 10. This is what God does to that other governor. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And we talked about those earlier. There they will be tormented day and night, Forever and ever. Let me just say something real quick. I, I, I have questions. There's something called annihilationism. This is where some Christians believe that God, on the last day, there'll be a short period of torment, but that God will just destroy everybody evil, including Satan and his demons. And while it makes God look more gracious to believe that, the same Greek words used to describe hell as being forever and ever are the same Greek words used to describe heaven as being forever and ever, and I really don't want heaven to come to an end. So I have a really hard time believing that God is going to let one phrase mean something when it applies here and a different thing when it applies here. But I don't know, and I never will know, and anybody who does know can't come back and tell you. Jesus is clear on that. And he tells us a story about a rich man and Lazarus, and if you don't know the story, see, after you die, there's a chasm that's fixed, and it's fixed forever in this story. This is why, by the way, one of the many reasons why near-death experiences, guys, they're a hoax. Satan is trying to trick you, trying to lie to you, he's trying to deceive you. It is a hoax. Do not believe it. I don't have time to go there in this message. You just need to know it does not hold up scripturally at all. 
It's the only things we can know and trust for sure, the things that come from the mouth of the one who's faithful and true. And I know if you're visiting with us today, you're like, gosh, this guy's all, all amounts of judgmental, and he says all kinds of things that, you know, he can't prove or back up. You're right. I can't necessarily prove everything I'm telling you, but I can tell you it comes from the Word of God. And I'm only asking for you to stick with me through this message while I reveal to you what the Word of God says. And you can wrestle with whether you trust that or not, but I promise it's not just my opinion. In Revelation chapter 20, let's look at the very next verse. What happens next? We left off the 10 last week, verse 11 now. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. Now let's just talk about what that means. Revelation 4 and 5, we saw this great white throne, the one who was seated on it, seated on it. We know that's God. And we also know that Jesus is there on the throne. Now the reason it's great, it's big because God is huge. The reason it's white is because white in the book of Revelation stands for victory. And this is um, why we see the people wearing white as they're celebrating. This is why in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus continues to say through John to the churches, you'll be dressed in white. You'll be wearing white. You'll be given a white stone with a new name on it. These are signs of victory. Then we get to the place, earth and sky fled from his presence. Think about this. What John is trying to get to is using metaphoric language to paint a picture that there's nowhere you can go to escape God. And on this day, the heavens, the earth, the sky, they try to get away from him, but they couldn't get away from him. What is he saying? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Now think about this for a minute, guys. If God is literally everywhere, even the earth, the sky, can't get away from his presence, that means he knows everything. And this ought to be extremely encouraging and um, terrifying at the same time. And this isn't a sermon on why do bad things happen to good people? But let me just give you a statement of triumph from this verse. If God knows everything, that means when that horrible thing was happening to you, he was there. And I know, I know it brings up lots of questions, but the one thing we learn about Revelation 20 emphatically was that there is a day, and it is a fixed day. You and I just don't know when it is. There's a day where God is going to call into account everything, everything. He's being patient right now so that the person or the persons who hurt you or are hurting you will be brought to account. And by God's grace, it might not be today because he's patient, not wanting anyone to suffer, but all to come to repentance. But it's also terrifying because let's say that person is you. You're the one hurting, you're the one lying, you're the one deceiving, you're the one causing the harm. There is going to come a final day, a judgment day, and nothing you've ever done, though you were the only one who knew nothing you've ever done has gone unknown, unseen. So you might have tricked and fooled everybody else, but you have not tricked or fooled him. Verse 12, and I saw the dead both great and small, standing before God's throne. The reason he says this is because it doesn't matter if they were unborn children or if they were old and died as old as you could be. It doesn't matter if they're rich and powerful or if they were poor and weak. It doesn't matter. Everybody, great and small, that means a lot. We're standing before God's throne. We are now at judgment day. And the books were open, including the book of life. Now, what is these books and what is the book of life? These books, as best we could tell from the context, is the fact that every single thing you've ever done, good, bad, or otherwise, are written down. And there's going to come a day of accounting. And on that day, we're going to be held accountable. Look at the next thing. And the dead were judged according to what they had done 
as recorded in the books. These books. Not this book, these books. So imagine this, on Judgment Day, God's got these books strewn out everywhere. He's got all people of all time, and we're going to get to that in a minute. You're going to see everybody who's ever lived and died, they're all there gathered in one place, and God opens up the books, and he gets the scales down. Hey, here's Matt Nickerson, and I hope it's a really long book he's got there, and he's reading through it, and he's got the whole thing, and he's looking at my life, and he's judging my life. He's discerning, how did Matt do? Well, I have peace in that moment. And see, I know if you're visiting here today and you're not sure about this Jesus guy and me and you don't know what to think, I just want you to hang on to this for a minute. Just wrestle with this for a minute. If all you have is your good deeds, then all you've got is what's recorded in those books. That's all you've got. You don't have this book. You've got these books. And that's an important distinguishment to make. You need to know the difference because I know how this goes. Everybody's got somebody in their head. It's Saddam Hussein, it's Adolf Hitler, it's whoever it is. And you go, I'm better than them. I'm gooder than them. And I know. And so you look at them, or maybe it's somebody else. It's your boss, it's your dad, it's your mom, it's whoever it is. And you go, I'm better than them. Therefore, God must want me on his team. And there's an arrogance in that. That God needs me on his team, would want me on his. He'd be honored to have me in heaven. The question is, what does the text say? What does the Bible say? And here it's saying we're all going to be judged according to what we've done. So hang on to that. Look at verse 13 now. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. So in other words, anything that has death, because again, if you live in the ancient Palestine, the sea is a big thing because a lot of people died in shipwrecks and whatnot, lost the sea. Hey, they're all going to come back for this moment. Everybody who's in the grave, they're all going to come back at this moment, and everybody will be judged for their deeds. And before you are convinced that you're good to go, just stick with me now. Look at verse 14 and what it says. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Notice death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. What they're saying is there isn't another thing to come. This is it. At this moment now, judgment day, death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. They are forever and ever done with. And then the lake of fire is the second death. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and God comes down and he pronounces his judgments, you can read this later if you would like, first book in the Bible, and God says, now you will surely die. In the Hebrew, it's actually redundant because it actually says, in dying death. In other words, God is even giving in the very first book of the Bible this idea that after the first death, there is a second death. And it's coming as a result of sin. And see, this is the way the Bible unfolds the story. We'll see this more in a minute in another passage. But when Adam sinned, he passed down to every generation of person what we call a sin nature so that your parents had it and their grandparents had it and their grandparents had it and on and on and on all the way back to Adam. And every man and every woman and every child has carried this sin nature with them. And that's all of our deeds piled up into our book. And then verse 15. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So what we see is if all you have is the one set of books and not the other book, it means something. I don't know, you're, you're assuming your name is in the book of life. Because you've done really good things and you've done more good than bad, which may be debatable anyway, 
But I know some of you are convinced of that. So if I can, look, my goal is not to go toe-to-toe with you and argue with you about, you know, you really aren't as good as you think you are. I just really want you to see who God says that you are, how the Bible reveals you to be. So if you will just go down this journey with me and just open your eyes and your heart to this question, am I all that I claim that I am? If you'll just ask that question. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you in the Old Testament, there's a prophet. His name is Isaiah. And Isaiah looks into the future and he begins to predict things that all came true. It's amazing the things he predicted and how accurate they are. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And I don't want to be gross, I've said this before, but the Hebrew here, most English translators try to take out the sting of what the Hebrew says. This is actually the phrase, menstrual rags. Okay, moving on. So, the reason Isaiah writes this is because you, us, me, we bring our good deeds, the best of what we have, and we bring it to judgment day before God, and we say, God, but look when I gave money to this thing, and look, God, when I didn't do this, and look, God, I said no here, and look how I said yes here, and God's gonna say, you know what all those good things are? They're nothing but that to me. You're gonna say, well, God, that wasn't very nice. I tried really hard. I worked really hard at those, and he'll say, not hard enough. Because I got this book here, and what about that time when nobody else saw what you did? And what about that time you didn't confess that? And what about that time you lied and deceived and covered that one up? And then Isaiah goes on, he says, like autumn leaves, we, all of us, wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Look at the next verse. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. This is I saying we, we don't call out to God. We don't say, God, we need you. Forgive us. Show us mercy, Lord. Instead, what we say is, I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I got it all figured out. None of us. Paul calls on the same passage in Romans chapter 3. He says, look, all of us, our tongues are evil, and all of us keep our mouths shut when we need to call on mercy. We don't call on mercy. Instead, in arrogance and in pride, we say, no, I don't need a savior. I'm the savior. I'm good enough. I'll fix it. I'll save myself. He says, therefore, you, that's God, have turned away from us and turned us over to our sins. Now, you may be sitting there, if you know anything about the Bible, you might be saying to yourself, well, that's Old Testament, that's not New Testament, that's not New Covenant. So let me just show you, Jesus deals with this in his very first public sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, and it's long, it's great, I love it because it's long, but Gives me a good excuse. But in Matthew chapter five, we see the whole thing. I'm only gonna deal with two things because I think with the first one, I'll hit all the women and many men. And with the second one, I'll hit all the men and many women. And, and I'll, in these just two illustrations from the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to see that you're not as good as you think that you are. Matthew chapter five, verse 21. You have heard, this is Jesus, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. Well, everybody in here agrees, right? Murder, not good. Everybody agrees with that. And if you've done that, If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Okay, no problem. Bad people, go to hell. But I say, Jesus says, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Anybody innocent? Any husbands elbowing your wives? Let's go further. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. This is God's court. If you curse someone... You are in danger of the fires of Gehenna. It's the word there. We'll talk about it later. Or hell. What Jesus is trying to get to here is your standard for righteousness is nowhere near God's standard for righteousness. 
Everybody here agrees murder is wrong, but God says, I'll take it way further. It's not just wrong to murder, but to be judgmental and angry. I don't even know, I don't have a box for that. And Jesus says, I know, that's because you're so ruined by sin, you justify one thing while condemning another, and you don't realize the same standard you're using to justify your thing is condemning you. The word idiot here is the word raka in Greek, and it's the word many translations put as fool, and literally the word fool in the Old Testament is used by Old Testament writers to describe somebody who is so bullheaded they are opposed to God, and he's saying, you shouldn't even look at somebody and say, you are set against God. Man, you are judging yourself for doing that, and there's a reason I don't wear a K sticker on my car, because me and driving and anger just don't go well together. Okay, so if all the women are guilty, because I think I've got most of you in this verse, let me deal with the men now, just a little bit later, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. Everybody agrees, cheating on your spouse is bad. Well, most people agree, cheating on your spouse is bad. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ah, Jesus, come on. Why did you have to make it so hard? Couldn't we have just stopped it? Everybody who commits adultery is wrong? No, you had to go right to us, all of us. When you even look at another person with lust in your heart, you're already guilty. And then he goes on. It gets really crazy. Jesus, guy, he says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. I love that he says your good eye. Like, if you got a bad one and your good one's causing you to lust, don't get out the bad one. Take out the good one. So on your way out today, we're going to hand you some pokers. Just kidding, it won't happen. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna or hell. And if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna or hell. So what do we do do with all this? And what Jesus is trying to say is extreme. And I don't, I don't know any popes and priests and pastors who are missing an eye and a hand. I know plenty that should be. But Jesus wasn't intending for us to take it literally. Jesus was intending for us to say, your standard of righteousness is not strong enough. It's not strong enough. In fact, Jesus goes on, Matthew 5, 20. <laughs> Look at what he says here. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to us, that doesn't mean anything. But in that day, it meant something because those were the, wor- or the best of the best of the best. There's nobody more righteous than them. And he's saying, you better far surpass the best of the best of the best or you aren't making it. And everybody in Jesus' day would have gone, well, who's better than them? And Jesus goes, exactly. So what do you do about it? Well, in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Luke, I'm just showing you both books now. I love this. Jesus gives us the answer. What do you do with it? Here it goes. Luke chapter 12, verse 57, Jesus says, why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? When you are on the way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to an officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free again until you have paid the very last penny. And what Jesus is trying to say here, I love this, it's, it's, it's in story form, but he's saying, if you're on your way to judgment day, and the judge is waiting for you, and you know that the judge has books upon books of your life and your deeds that don't line up, what you need to do is on your way there with your accuser, you need to grab somebody who's going to mediate for you and work out terms of peace, so that before you get there, it's already settled, 
Now, if you put this into the context of Jesus saying those, what he's saying is, before you get to your last day, before you get to that judgment moment, go to Jesus, let him work out the terms of peace through the cross of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, and what will happen is on that day, you'll stand before the judge, and he'll say, innocent, because I've already negotiated the terms of peace through the blood of Jesus. I love the way R.C. Sproul says this in this passage, on his commentary on Luke, he says, Jesus pleads with them to make their peace with him before it is too late. And before that last judgment comes and the sentence is brought down, he says, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Some have taken comfort from these words. At least they say, those who are thrown into prison, presumably the prison of hell, don't have to stay there forever because after they have paid for all their crimes, they'll be released. I take little comfort from the idea of a second chance because we are debtors who can never pay our debts. And offending a holy, infinite, and eternal God, our sin itself is infinite and eternal. That is why we require a sacrifice that is of infinite worth. That is why the cross is our only hope, because on the cross, Christ paid that debt. The only possible means of redemption for us is by grace. And I do not like acronyms, I'm just being honest. But the word grace, some have said, stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. And I love that, actually, even though I don't like acronyms, because it gives me this picture. Here, here's what God is saying in Jesus. He's saying, give me the worst of your worst. Give me all your brokenness, your deception, your lies, your sin, even the things nobody else knows about, those things that eat at you at night because you know about them. You give me those, and what I'll give you is life, eternal life, this fantastic gift. Oh, well, how do I have to earn it, God? You don't earn it. You just receive it. That's why R.C. Sproul goes on and he says this, Christ has paid that debt. And if you despise his payment, then all you have left is to pay it yourself. His payment, however, is perfect and gracious and will cover every last sense of your indebtedness. Everything that we owe can be settled out of court. Therefore, the, judge, the judgment is a moment of triumph for Christ and for his people. If you love God there's a pronouncement over you. Life, wearing white, salvation, eternal life. But if you are far from God and you despise his ways and his method, the only thing left is to stand before the judge pleading your best day. Paul goes on, and the, and the church at Corinth is dealing with this very issue, and they're being tempted by the ways of the world. He begs them throughout Corinthians, don't go back to being like the world. Don't you know that the world has nothing for you? And he makes this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. He says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everybody dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. What he's trying to get to, here's what I told you earlier. Every single man, woman, and child belongs to Adam because we followed in his ways by sinning. However, we don't have to because now we can belong to Christ who gave us new life. He took the death of the old man. He brought us the life of the new man. But look at the next verse here, verse 23. Love this. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
In other words, what, what Paul's trying to get to here is this. For those who die, you will be raised again for a judgment, and that'll either lead to that second judgment, hell, or it'll lead to eternal life. And his whole point is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have absolute confidence. You will be raised on that last day to life, not just short life, eternal life that goes on forever and ever and ever. And here's the thing. I don't know if I've made this clear in the other services. The reason we receive hell is because we are so far from God that we love things that aren't him. And God has been fighting for your heart, for your life, for your mind, for your family to satisfy all those longings that you have in your heart in him. So on your bad days, on your hard days, on your stressful days, when you turn to something other than him, it reveals to us that we have something other than him as the seat, the center of our heart. And God says, I want that spot and I'm not going to share it with anyone or anything else. So what do we do? Let's say you're sitting here and you become convinced that maybe you aren't all that at our meet and greet, I had a conversation with a young lady, and I'll let it uh, stay private. But she said, I, I, I go to a Catholic church. That's fine. And, but I was convicted. I've not been living for Christ. I've been walking dead. It's my word. And um, she said, I want to. But what does that mean? And she asked me a series of hard questions. She said, I struggle with this. And she mentioned a sin. And... Um, she said, well, God allow me into heaven. I said, absolutely, God will allow you into heaven, but realize what God is calling you to. God loves you too much to leave you how he found you. See, when you come to Christ and there's faith in Jesus Christ, what, what that means is this. You can literally sit here and say, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. He's the way to be made right with God, the only way. I can't do it on my own. I believe that. When you do that, that's called faith, but that's not the last thing we do. And I don't want to be legalistic and like creating all these steps. If you don't get one out of order whatever, you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a moment where you have to say, you know what, God, I love you more than I love all these other things. And that's what I was talking about with this young lady. There has to be a moment where you're coming to Jesus. You're not saying, Jesus, I want you and I want to be a drunk. Jesus, I want you, and I want to stay addicted to this thing. Jesus, I want you, and I want to be a gossip and a slander. Jesus, I want you, and I want to be cruel or mean or harsh and abusive. No, you're saying, Jesus, I want you, and I want you to transform me into the likeness of your son. And while I accept that I need your grace to get there, and it's going to take time and the work of your Holy Spirit, God, I need you, and whatever you tell me, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. To surrender your life, your ways, your wants, your desires, your wills to him, even when it doesn't make sense. And when you're ready to do that, the next thing you do, and I, I encourage you to do all these things in one moment, but the next thing we do is we go into the waters of baptism. We become one with Christ. One of my favorite preachers, a guy named Andy Stanley, he wrote a book. I think it was in his book called Seven Checkpoints. I've read a number of his books. And he was the son of Charles Stanley, famous Southern Baptist preacher all over the TV, radio, the whole nine yards. And he said, you know, he would hear his dad preach a convicting sermon. And he'd get convicted. And his dad would say, if you're ready to receive Christ, you need to pray this prayer. And Andy would be sitting in the audience. He said, I pray the prayer. And then I'd go somewhere else and another guy would preach. It'd be very convicting. And he'd be like, well, I wasn't perfect since my last sermon when I gave my life to Christ. And, and they'd say, if you're convicted, you need to pray this prayer. And it'd be different words than his dad used. So he'd pray that prayer. And he said, after doing this a few times, I didn't understand that God wasn't looking for me to get this magic formula. I have to get the specific words in order to be saved. That God wanted to develop in me an authentic faith, a trust in him that Jesus is my savior. 
Not I wanted to pick up the phone and call Andy and say, man, you nailed it. You nailed it. Good job. However, you missed something, Andy. God gave us a gift in baptism. It's a marker moment. It's a moment where I go down into the waters. The reason we go down into the waters is because it represents a death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus wasn't sprinkled in death. Jesus completely immersed in death in the tomb, and he came up out of that tomb completely alive. And we go into the water immersed into the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It's a gift that God gave you, so you don't ever have to wonder, did I say the right words? Did I get it all right? Did I sin again afterwards? I can always point to that day on a calendar in time and say, that's the day I chose to be united with Christ. And that's why Paul says in that same passage, see this, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. If the dead will not be raised, then what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And this is one, by far, one of the hardest passages in all the Bible, and I don't have time to unpack it here, but if you follow Paul's argument, what he's saying is, some of you are struggling with whether or not the dead will be raised to judgment and then to life, and he's saying, if you have been united with Christ in baptism here, then you should trust, why would we even be baptized here if we won't be raised there? There's something symbolic and powerful happening here that's real and powerful happening there. And in Romans chapter 6, he says the same thing. He says, don't you know that anybody who is baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection will certainly be raised to life with him one day? And this is why we're challenging anybody in this room, whether you were sprinkled as a baby and your parents did the best they knew and said, I'm committing my son or my daughter, or whether you've just never taken that step on January 31st to make it a special day. Okay, so two things. Number one, if that's you in this room, we are not saying people who've been sprinkled are not going to heaven. That is not what we're saying. What I'm saying is nobody could choose faith for you. I can't choose it for my own kids. I can't choose it for my wife, but I could choose it for me. My parents did the best they knew to teach me about Jesus, but here at some point I had to make a choice. It was my choice. If you've been sprinkled at birth, I just encourage you, challenge you to become one with Christ. Consider January 31st. Now for everybody else in the room, you're right with God, you're good to go, we're throwing a big old whiteout party. January 31st, our 9, 15, 11 services, come wearing white, white sweater, white shirt, white t-shirt, white pants, I'm kidding, you don't have to go that far, but something on your upper body white. For those of you who forget, we'll have t-shirts provided, but it's winter. You may wanna bring your own white something or other. Look, ladies, this is a fantastic opportunity to say to your husband, I gotta go buy clothes. I'm going to need white shoes. I'm going to need white jewelry. I'm going to come wearing white because we're going to throw a big old party. Now, anybody getting baptized, we got a dark shirt for you. You can put your white on afterwards. But it's going to be a great party and celebration for anybody accepting Christ. And if you're ready to sign up, you can do it through our website, through our app, or even today. You can go outside these doors, go right to that red table and say, I want to sign up for January 31st. Now, I'm over on time. But if you'll just give me a few more minutes, I will describe for you what the Bible tells us about hell very quickly. Here it is. That word Gehenna, that's the word for hell. It's used, I believe it's 12 or 13 times, almost always by Jesus. And it literally means Valley of Hinnom, which means nothing to you. But if you were to go and study your Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom is referred to, I believe it's a Jeremiah, and I think it's in Ezekiel. And it's a very clearly a place in Israel. The Valley of Hinnom is a place where the Israelites worshiped many false gods, and that may not mean anything to you, but realize the connections that Jesus is making between this place and where hell is. Just saying to the Israelites, who they all knew what the Valley of Hinnom was, remember that place where your ancestors turned away from God and turned to these other things? That's what hell will be. It'll be a place eternally where people have turned away from God. 
Also, at some point in Hebrew history, we don't know when, the Valley of Hinnom literally was a trash dump that burned day and night nonstop. And you get some of the analogies for Jesus and what he says about it. So number two, hell, according to Matthew 8, 12 and 13, 42 to 50, and in many others, I just put one or two in case you wanted to look them up later. This is all in the app or you can write them down. Hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what that means when Jesus says that is it's a place of great regret and sorrow and pain. I don't know if you've ever gnashed your teeth. You ever been so angry? You know, you know your dad when he got really angry. <laughs> Imagine that's you, though, eternally. One time I had surgery on my foot and it turned into an infection and messed with the nerves of my foot. I've told this story before, but it was unbelievable pain for days. I couldn't sleep at night on heavy medication just trying to survive, and it was just messing with me. And I remember I would lay on the couch writhing in pain as the spikes would just be so incredibly intense, literally gritting my teeth. The pain was so intense. The sorrow was so intense. Number three, according to Jude 1.7 and other places, hell is a place of eternal fire. And then number four, hell is sometimes called outer darkness. Again, Matthew 8, 12 is just an example. Here's what I think. I think when you put all these together, you get a, a tragically horrible description of what's going to come for those who are outside of God. Are all of these intended to be literal? I don't know. They very well could be. I think especially in these here, I think this is probably literal. I think in these, Jesus is giving us symbolic descriptions of how terrible hell is going to be. And the reason I say that is because, for one reason, it's hard to have eternal fire and darkness together. But let's just say God, because he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. Let's just say he has a way that eternal fire and outer darkness go hand in hand. And I just can't wrap my head around it. Maybe it's like some black hole kind of something or other. I don't know. Even if that's true, that's terrible, but even if it's not true and it's symbolic, do you know what symbolism is? Symbolism is our way in English of doing the best that we can to describe something that's worse than the thing we can use to describe it. We use symbolism in order to tell you, this is really, really bad, but the best way I can help you understand it is eternal fire, outer darkness, totally separated, cut off from God. In fact, so much so, you'll be weeping and gnashing teeth for eternity. So now who goes there? Who is hell for? Well, number one, hell was created and prepared for Satan and his demons. We read that in Revelation 20, but also Matthew 25, 41. And then also, God will send to hell those who simply do not believe in Jesus and love him. Uh, there's lots of verses I could put here, but let me just read you one. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Now, you may not understand the word cursed, but in Paul's language, the word cursed literally means condemned, aligned with Satan. And then he finishes, oh, Lord, come. Notice this is the chapter right after the resurrection chapter. So we have one chapter that's begging us, pleading with us, follow God, give your lives to God, you will be raised in the last day. But anybody who doesn't love the Lord... And realize one of Paul's favorite verses for the Lord is the Lord Jesus is cursed. Guys, this should be terribly humbling. 
your friends and your loved ones and your family members and celebrities who give us so many great gifts and times and laughter and pleasure and enjoyment, if they don't love Jesus, it doesn't matter how nice or kind or friendly or good or how much we liked them. It won't matter. The only thing that matters is do they love Jesus? The only thing that matters for you is do you love Jesus? I'm begging with you. Don't leave today before making a decision to make Jesus Lord of your life. I'm begging you. Because on the last day, you won't be able to say, I didn't know. He'll say, remember, January 17th, 2016, you were told. A couple quick quotes and then I'll close. D.A. Carson, a great scholar, says this. Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good blokes, but they just didn't believe the right stuff. They're consigned there because first and foremost, they defy their maker and they want to be at the center of the universe. C.S. Lewis says this in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find. Those who knock, it is opened. Listen, anybody here can avoid hell and have what I'm going to talk about next week. Please come back. Let me tell you the good side of the story. Anybody here can have heaven. Anybody here can have heaven. You just have to choose Christ. That's it. Come back to Revelation 2015. I'll close here. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Please find your name in the book of life. And here's how I'll close. I, am, I know this message falls all over the place. Some of you are wrestling with whether or not you have peace with God. You need to do some hard business with God, and we're going to give you the opportunity to do that through communion in just a minute. Some of you have never surrendered to Christ. You've never been united with him and have that confidence from baptism. Look, you could do it today. You can wait till January 31st. Just make up a mind, your mind. Don't wait. And while we're singing, you can go to my left, your right, and say, look, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. We'll talk to you about it today. Otherwise, would you go out today and sign up today? Now, let me just close with this. For those of you in the room who are you're good with God, you got peace with God, and would you let this message motivate you? The other day, one of my uh, former students, good friends, he's in ministry. He's like one of those kids I look at and say, I'm so proud you turned out the way you did. He was in town with his wife, and uh, he's going to a new ministry in Virginia. And we stopped, and we did food here at a local restaurant. I won't say the name of the restaurant. And there was nobody else in the restaurant but me and him and his wife. And the waitress came over, and she had a tattoo on her arm. And by the way, I don't care about tattoos. Um, but her tattoo said something about struggle, and I couldn't make it out. It was in a cursive. And I said, what's your tattoo say? And she said, oh, well, I just moved here not too long ago. I said, oh, cool. What brought you to the area? She said, well, I chased a guy. And I said, well, how'd that work out? She said, we're not together anymore. I said, oh, you're still here, though. She said, yeah, I don't really have anything to go back to. And the tattoo, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it said something like, in struggle, triumph. And she said, it's because after this relationship broke up, I realized I'm a strong person, and I'm going to be okay. She walked away to go get her drinks, and I looked at my former student, my friend, and I said, God's told me I'm supposed to try to get her here. So I went back, and she wasn't working that day. I'm going to go back again this week, and I'm going to keep going back. And by God's grace, he'll make our paths cross. And maybe I'll be able to just tell her about the hope found in Jesus. I'm not going to preach at her. I'm not going to condemn her. 
Who am I to condemn anybody? I'm a sinner desperately in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. The believer in this room, here's where I'm ending up. Would you, would you consider truly, truly changing the way you view this life? Stop accumulating wealth. Stop spending your life in sports. Stop giving yourself to things that don't matter, won't last. Would you make some plans, some heartfelt plans to reach out, to build a bridge, to invest in somebody who doesn't know Jesus and realize their eternity is on the line? And the greatest gift you could give them is the gift of salvation. And Jesus literally talks to, to his believers. And then he says, look, you would be so intelligent to invest all that you have here so that when you get there, you'll find a whole room full of people that you've invested in when you get there. Would you consider ways to build bridges, to not be afraid? Who cares if they don't like you because of it? Eternity is on the line. And if any of you have lost a loved one, you know how hard this is. Pray that God builds up in you the courage to never see it happen again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come. I want you to come back today. But God, I also know, I also know that if you come back today, there are far too many of our loved ones and friends who are far from you and need you. So God, I just beg you, should you not return today, that give us the courage, the boldness to act like we believe what I just taught, including me, especially me, to be bold enough to invite, to ask, to speak, to encourage, to challenge, to invest, to do something with our lives. It makes a difference for eternity, God, and help keep us from being distracted by these things, God, in front of us, cars and clothes and houses and sports and things that don't mean anything eternally. God, help us to stay focused on you and your kingdom because eternity is at stake. God, would you open up before us the path, the conversations that we might go and invite people far from you to come and know you and love you and give their lives to you, God, and may we be blessed by it. Now, should we face judgment or persecution or mocking or whatever it is from other people who don't get it, God, give us the, the strength to keep on loving in the midst of it, not bringing down curses or condemnation, but instead praying for them and blessing them because that's what you did to us when we were stubborn and hard-hearted against you. God, I thank you for what I know you're going to do in this place and do this message. God, would you bless January 31st? May it be a, an unbelievable movement of your power in our midst as we gather together to celebrate our King coming. And God, should it be the day you choose to come back, we're going to find ourselves dressed and ready for the party already. And we love you, praise you in Jesus' name.